Thank you, Alan. I think. Since we were with you last in October, I think, we've been all over the place. As a matter of fact, since last September, I don't think we've been in our home church more than a half dozen times. Um, But, and everywhere we go, uh, we seem to be finding churches that are full of young people. A lot of them, there's hardly anybody over the age of 35, and they're on fire for God. And that to me is, you know, it's, you can have a bunch of people sitting in an auditorium, but do you have people who are on fire for God? Well, I hope you're on fire for God this morning. Well, one or two maybe. (laughs) But all the places we go, there's no place like this. Yeah. In many ways, it's home for us. I want to talk this morning on when the kingdom comes in power. And uh, I think it's in line with the theme that Ian sent me. If it isn't, it's too late to change it. (laughs) But I think it is. And uh, I would... I haven't got my phone on me. Can I borrow your Bible, Alan? It's always a good thing. Oh, wait a minute. The text has popped up. I don't need it. (laughs) Easy come, easy go. (laughs) Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, so that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with evil spirits, and they were all healed. Well, why was the apostolic church, that first church in Jerusalem, uh, why was it so successful? Why did it grow so quickly? This passage obviously gives us a clue. But the question is, how did they get there? That's the question. We're all in the place where we are. We have an idea of where we would like to be, but how do we get there? Well, to understand how they got there, we have to go back to where the story starts, which in my uh, view is way back in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21, where it says this. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So the question in this text is, what is the the significance of the descent of the Spirit on Jesus? So this voice from heaven declared that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, obviously, that information was not for Jesus' benefit. He knew it. Uh, It's hard to imagine that Jesus required a revelation from the Holy Spirit concerning his identity. So the descent of the Spirit of the Jordan is to be understood as the empowering of the Messiah, which enables him to begin his ministry of baptism with fire and the Spirit. 
And that, of course, initiates the breaking into human history of the kingdom of God. Now, it's interesting that Jesus went straight from his baptism into the wilderness. And there he dealt the first of many blows on Satan's grasp on the world. Three times the devil tempted him. Three times Jesus quoted Deuteronomy to refute him. Jesus refused the temptation to be fed, whereas Israel had despised the manna and craved for the food of Egypt. Jesus refused the devil's demand that he test God by throwing himself down from the temple, whereas Israel had tested God at the waters of Massa, where Moses himself came to grief. And thirdly, Jesus refused the devil's offer of the kingdoms of this world by vowing to serve God and him only, whereas Israel had worshipped the golden calf and given into idolatry. So what is happening here with Jesus in the desert? God is making a point for us. Israel had failed in their 40 days in the wilderness, but in his 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus succeeded. He reversed the failure of Israel. God had given Israel a commission to be a light to the nations, Isaiah 49 and 6. They had failed, but Jesus is not going to fail. He is going to succeed in his commission through his church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is why, although... uh, It's not advisable to try to attempt to predict when Jesus is going to return. You'll fall flat in your face. And I teach courses in various places to that effect. But there's one signpost, and that is Matthew 24 and 14, where it says that the kingdom of God will go first to every nation before the end will come. And nation is ethnos, people group. There's tons of people groups in the world today that the kingdom of God has not come to. But the point of that saying of Jesus and, and of the Great Commission, where we're called to disciple people from every nations, is precisely this. That number one, God had commissioned Adam to extend the boundaries to the ends of the, of the garden, to the ends of the earth, through being fruitful and multiplying. Adam and Eve failed. Number two, God had then given a similar commission to Israel, to be a light to the nations. Israel had failed. But God has commissioned Jesus through his baptism and the breaking in of the power of the kingdom of God to extend the boundaries of the kingdom of God to every single people group in the world. And it is not until the triumph of God in that endeavor comes to pass that Jesus will return. So we're on a very exciting mission. It doesn't mean that we won't face opposition. If you are succeeding in the plan of God, I guarantee that you will receive satanic opposition. If you've got a target painted on your chest, then you're a threat to the work of the devil. So when the devil shows up, then be glad. But just remember, you're on the winning side. So the spirit... Well, somebody's getting enthusiastic. I'm glad. Didn't didn't start too well, but it's improving. Okay. Now, the Spirit had, had come upon Jesus at the Jordan, and now Jesus, as I said, emerges from his triumph over the devil in that 40-day period, and he immediately 
uh, begins to declare the coming of the kingdom of God. So it's interesting that the interrelationship of the Holy Spirit on the one hand and the kingdom of God on the other hand, it runs like a thread throughout all of the Gospels and the book of Acts. And the Spirit who came upon Jesus at the Jordan now manifests the rule of God in mighty miracles. If by the Spirit of God that I, if it is by the Spirit of God, Jesus said in Matthew 12, that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So the coming of the Spirit and the coming of the kingdom uh, are one and the same thing, or at least they occur at the same time, or one is essential to the other. Now, In this matter of Jesus declaring the kingdom in his earthly ministry, the story didn't pan out exactly as the disciples had expected. Because they, like most Jews of their generation, expected that when the Messiah came, uh, Jesus, that, that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would seize power and drive the Romans out. And so even the disciples, uh, fell prey to that deception. They were asking for seats at the right hand and the left when Jesus came in his government after he got rid of the Romans. And of course, uh, they didn't understand what was going on. Even after spending three years with Jesus, it's interesting that you can be around church and under good teaching and not get it. That doesn't happen in this church. That might happen somewhere. So, Toward the end of his ministry, Jesus told a story to people who were expecting the complete fulfillment of the kingdom to occur at any moment. And uh, he tells the story of a nobleman who goes away to another country to receive his kingdom. Then he returns to rule. So Jesus must first go away. They didn't understand, obviously, that, that part of his mission was that he was actually going to die on a Roman cross. But Jesus must first go away. If he is going to return with fuller kingdom authority. He was already exercising extraordinary authority. But something bigger is on the horizon. And Jesus must go away in order for that to occur. So the gospel accounts demonstrate the breaking in of the kingdom. Through the anointing of the spirit upon Jesus. But they also point at the same time to an even greater fulfillment that will take place following the cross. And that's why we shouldn't be surprised when we come to the book of Acts that the subject of Jesus' teaching of the disciples in the period between the resurrection and Pentecost, that 40-day there's another 40 days going on again, very significant number in the Bible, that the subject of Jesus' teaching in that 40-day period was the Holy Spirit, and the kingdom of God. He presented himself alive to them, Acts 1 and 3, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then, in the next verse, he instructs them to say in Jerusalem, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So there it is again, He's reminding them that this whole thing is about two things. The coming of the Holy Spirit and the breaking in of the kingdom of God. So the kingdom had arrived in one sense, certainly in Jesus' earthly ministry. But now a greater fulfillment is at hand, which was 
launched through his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, where, having sat down, he begins to rule. It's an interesting thing in Scripture is that the retirement of God, the apparent retirement of God, where he sits down, like on the seventh day of creation, is never the place of sitting around doing nothing. When God sits down to rest, he begins to reign. And so when the book of Hebrews teaches us that we have now entered into God's rest, it doesn't mean that you're collecting your retirement pension and heading to the south of France. Might be nice, but it means that now is the time for God to start to rule. I don't believe in, some of you may have noticed, I don't believe in retirement. I believe in refirement. I know that's kind of corny, but it makes the point. I'll retire, God willing, in the day of my funeral. I think I'm going to tape a message so nobody else gets to preach. <laughs> well, I might allow Alan, because he'd take up a good offering for the widow. <laughs> I lost myself now. Okay. So, why is this... Greater fulfillment at hand. Why is it greater? Well, it's greater because the events of the cross and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father precipitate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, not just on Jesus, but now on all of God's people. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost fulfilled Jesus' promise that the believers would receive the power of the Spirit. So now the kingdom is operating by the power of the Spirit, not just in Jesus, but also in his followers. How many of you know that you receive the power of the Spirit to exercise kingdom authority? You don't just receive the power of the Spirit to have a nice charismatic experience. I'm all for charismatic experiences, that's fine, but there has to be a point to them. It's an empowering to do something. And so, um, so now the, this power is operating in the believers, uh, and something is happening as a result. A crippled beggar who was a long-time fixture at the gate of the temple got up and walked when Peter grabbed his hand. And Luke says, great grace was upon not just the apostles, but upon everybody. And when the church met in Acts 4, the whole building shook. Miracles must have been happening all over town. Luke says here in Acts chapter 5, finally got up to my text. You might have noticed that. Maybe you didn't. He says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. And Solomon's portico was a place just outside the temple. It was quite close, actually, to the gate where the beggar had been healed. And so they progressed to this place, and they were just there. But uh, as they were there, they didn't have to go out handing tracts out or evangelizing people. The people were coming to them because of the power of God. And every day, they were there preaching, praying for people, and all the rest of it. And many signs and wonders were being done. They were operating in such a degree of power that people were, some people were scared even to join them. But it wasn't just the healings that were happening. It says uh, in the text, more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, in fact, of both 
men and women. If we want revival, if we want mass conversions, we need the power of the kingdom. We need the miraculous. And so, if Jesus, back in Luke 3, 21, at his baptism, that's where we started, if Jesus himself was empowered by the Spirit, by the descending of the Spirit upon him, how much more do we, as imperfect human beings, need that same empowering? How, how, how wrong is it when the Holy Spirit becomes just a piece of doctrine on a paper that guarantees that we're not just binatarians, but we're trinitarians? I know that's deep, but some of you will get it. The Holy Spirit is more than just a piece of doctrine on a paper. He is more than an it. Sometimes people refer to the Holy Spirit as it. Drives me around the bend. The Holy Spirit is God on earth. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. I know it's anthropomorphic language. That is to say uh, that the Bible, when the Bible says Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, it isn't that God and Jesus are sitting on fancy chairs, you know, in, in heaven. It's just a way of, of trying to describe what's happening. But it does describe one real truth, that Jesus and the Father operate in that cosmic realm, but the Holy Spirit is gone on earth. The Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son here into this world, and He is God. He's not just a servant of the Father or the Son. He himself is God. And we need to welcome the Holy Spirit. And people say, oh, it's theologically inaccurate to say, welcome the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Well, yes, but you can grieve the Spirit. You can, you can have church. I know you can hardly believe this. But you could have a church where the Holy Spirit was not welcome. You can have a church where the Holy Spirit was just a doctrine, a point of doctrine on a piece of paper. You can have a church where people say, we don't want the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this place. We don't want the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in this place. We don't want the power of the Holy Spirit. That was over 2,000 years ago. As if it was Peter and John and Paul and all those guys, they somehow were in greater need of the power of the Holy Spirit than we are. We don't need him anymore. Gee, I can't figure out how stupid people can be in church. Fifty years ago, a power encounter with the Holy Spirit changed my life. And I'm going to tell you, I was dragged into that kicking and screaming. I was one of those that didn't think I needed it. I'd led a young guy to the Lord. He was suicidal. I, I, uh, he, he had come out of a drug addiction, and I found another young man who'd come out of the drug addiction and come to Christ, and I thought maybe he could relate to him better than me. And so this guy comes in and says, I'm going to pray, lay hands on you, he says to my friend, and you're going to speak in tongues. I thought, whoa, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for that. And then he turned to me and said, what about you? And you know the thought that went through my mind was, well... I, and I had read a book called The Cross and the Switchblades, Ancient History Now. But the man in it, Nikki, you probably read it, Nikki, Nikki Cruz, a friend of mine, was just ministering with him in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. He's still going strong. And I thought that, you know, uh, it was all, this sort of stuff was only for drug addicts. But a respectable person like me didn't need all of this, you know. And, I mean, honestly, it's amazing God didn't just smite me at that moment. 
But not only did God not smite me, God met me. And uh, God humbled me. And I got to the point where I realized I needed and wanted this presence of God that I didn't have in my life, even though I didn't understand what it was. And I had people pray for me, and nothing happened, and God made me beg for for his presence. And I went back again, and somebody prayed for me, and I still thought nothing had happened until the guy standing beside me said, I just touched you, and God has done something. And I thought he was crazy because I felt nothing until I found myself on the floor unable to get up. And I didn't know what was happening to me. I crawled down about four flights of stairs. I crawled across a couple of rooms. My friend was laughing all the way. He obviously was in on something that I didn't understand. And he, he, he put my coat on me because it was very cold in Toronto on a February night and pushed me out into the road and said, call me tomorrow and tell me what's happened. And I walked along that road as if somebody was was pushing me, as picking me up by the scruff of my neck and pushing me. The power of God, now I understand, was all over me. And I stepped off the first curb into the street and I thought, well, it's now or never. I'd had this prejudice against speaking in tongues. I opened my mouth. And by the time I got to the other side of the street, I was speaking in a language I never learned. I walked around downtown Toronto until 3 o'clock in the morning, totally drunk in the spirit. It's amazing. Amazing I wasn't arrested. And it opened a door I didn't even know. I began to know things that were going to happen before they happened. And every time they happened, something significant happened. And I wound up praying for somebody. And they had the same experience as me. And after two weeks, I, I, I got like Samuel. You know, I speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. I clued in that this was the voice of God. And I went through, like C.S. Lewis's Narnia, I went through a doorway into a different world. And I never come out. It doesn't, doesn't, and, and, and I have to say that, that, that and I, I, forgive me, Alan, if this is, sounds arrogant, but this church wouldn't exist if I hadn't one day in 1980, at the, in February 1980, heard the audible voice of God. I think it's the only time in my life I ever heard that saying, stay in this city and found a church. It freaked me out. I'd never thought of founding a church. It was, you know, it was totally off my horizon. As much as the whole work of the Holy Spirit had been off my horizon. But you see, we need to hear God's voice. We are a prophetic people. Revelation 19 and 10 says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That means if you testify to Jesus, that means if you're a Christian, you are prophetic. You can hear the voice of God. The the devil is throwing his voice at us all the time. So we need the voice of God. We need to be able to hear God in order to fulfill his work in our life. And for that, we need this power encounter with the Holy Spirit. Paul said, be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. But if you analyze the Greek of that text, it actually says, be continually filled over and over and over again. So I can't, I go to a church one Sunday and, you know, God helps me by giving me a spirit and so on. Uh, but that's no good from the next Sunday. The next Sunday, if I'm preaching again, I need to be refilled with the Spirit. I need more. Sometimes I often, I'll be in the worship and everybody's, oh, you know, all, all the rest of it. It's wonderful worship leading with Raymond and Lindsay. I just say that because I want to be invited back to dinner with them. <laughs> no. Uh, wonderful worship this morning. 
God was present. Everybody's worshiping. And I'm saying, Jesus, please help me. Because if you don't show up, I really haven't got anything to say. Or whatever I do have to say, the words are just going to fall about onto the first step here and not even get as far as Alan, who needs to hear it. You know? <laughs> Sandra says, Amen. Okay. Two things happen when the kingdom of God arrives in town. The first thing is the presence of the supernatural. Our best human efforts operate only in the realm of the possible. The kingdom of God operates in the realm of the impossible. When all church does is what is humanly possible, it is not operating the way God designed it to. To take possession of the building across the way, we need a breaking in of kingdom authority and power. God willing, by the next time we're here, that will happen. I'm sure it will. So God wants us to break us out of the realm of the possible and into the realm of the impossible. But for that, we need the power of the kingdom. And to get the power of the kingdom, we need the Holy Spirit. But think about the, what the power of the kingdom does. Uh, I mean, people, it attracts people. People, <clears throat> people knew in Jerusalem Peter's itinerary. They knew which Starbucks he went to, or Costa, whatever. I'll contextualize it appropriately. Um, they knew what coffee shop he went to. And poor old Pete barely got out of the coffee shop with his supercharged caramel macchiato. He's walking along the street, and all of a sudden, they're, they're on his way to Solomon's portico. They know the route. They're laying out the sick all along the way. And Pete doesn't even have to, you know, stop sipping. Matter of fact, probably the shadow is coffee even passing. That's an anointing. My friend Mark DuPont says the kingdom does not move ahead without good coffee, and I agree. <laughs> but even his, the shadow of his coffee cup was passing over people, probably. I'm, I know I'm reading into a little bit, but only a little. Uh, and healing people. Imagine that. He wasn't even going and sort of laying hands on them or praying over them or shaking, rattling, rolling, or anything else. It was just happening as he passed by. And it says, this is an astonishing verse. In verse 16, it says, they were all healed. Have you ever been in a meeting where all were healed? I was in Chicago in 19... I won't even say it's embarrassing. It was, it was, all right, all right. It was 1974. I was six months old. Uh, and... And someone said to me, and this is ancient history to most of you. You don't even know what I'm talking about. Someone said to me, Catherine Kuhlman is in town. And uh, we're taking, we're at the seminary. We're taking one of the girls who had a bad back. And do you want to come? And I thought, oh, I don't know. I've heard about her, whatever. Well, I'm glad I said yes. We got in. We sneaked past the fire department that was trying to barricade people out of the meeting. Because there were 16,000 people in a hockey arena that sat 10,000. And some of them had lined up for 24 hours and more. And then as the service began, and this frail 73-year-old lady began calling out words of knowledge, and people started getting up out of wheelchairs. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. The impact of it changed my life. And I want that. I don't want it so that I'll have some big ministry. I'm too old to worry about that. I want it because I want the kingdom of God to come in power. I want to see people healed. I want to see them made. There's far too much brokenness in this world. 
of body, soul, and spirit. We're facing an epidemic of mental illness as a result of the last couple of years. Jesus, we need you to come in power because we can't do it in our own strength. The Apostle Paul said, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. But here in our sophisticated Western culture, we have been fed a steady diet for 300 years that the only reality is what we can access with our five senses, what we can see and touch and smell and taste and hear. Actually, it's an irrational way of thinking because given the vast intellectual capacities that some atheist philosophers and scientists have to be careful when I say the scientists, <clears throat> but none of these people has been able to explain how the random bunches of atoms that they themselves say they are can apparently so easily grasp the mysteries of a universe which itself cannot be explained, Chris help me, as anything other than the creation of a personal supernatural God. Christianity is nothing more nor less than the invasion of this messed up, fallen, troubled world by the sovereign exercise of the same divine power that created it in the first place. And thinking about healing, if God made us, he can heal us. And God does it, thankfully, through the learning and wisdom of doctors. Our own daughter had thyroid cancer a couple years ago. We're so grateful for the medical help that she received. But God can bypass the process. Or God can bring healing when the doctors can't. The church grows weak when it surrenders the very thing that the hostile atheistic world around us does not have. Which is the power of the kingdom of God. A friend of mine, his name is Gary Hayes. He's a prophet, travels all over the world. We recently, over a reasonably decent cup of coffee, uh, he told me this story. He and his wife had been unable to have children. Matter of fact, the doctor, doctors told them after various consultations that it was absolutely impossible that his wife would conceive. But they refused to accept it. Why? Because they'd heard the voice of God. They had access to information outside what the doctor was telling them. And in fact, they felt that God had given them the promise of a son. That they, they felt it so strongly, they decorated a room, they bought baby furniture, they got a plaque made with the name that they were going to give him and put it on the door. And they believed that he would be a worship leader who would travel and move in the prophetic, in the power of God. Well, they were, years passed, I can't remember how long, but quite a long time, uh, during which they hung on sometimes by the skin of their teeth. Uh, Gary shared with me there are times when they were angry with God. There are times when his uh, wife had come to the end of her tether and was angry with him and with God. And, and they just hung on through it all. But one day, his wife fell ill. And in that moment, both he and his wife knew this was it. So, and this is 28 years ago, uh, when pregnancy tests and so on weren't quite as reliable, uh, they went and got a pregnancy test, and uh, it was negative. So then, they went and got a second test, and it was negative. Now, this is te I'm teaching you something. They went and got a third test, and it was negative. They went and got a fourth test, 
and it was negative. They went and got a fifth test, and it was positive. Mm-hmm. And nine months later, Joshua was born. 28 years later, he is a powerful prophetic worship leader in Canada. When they went to the doctor, when they went to the doctor, the do- you won't believe this. The doctor said to Gary's wife, Sheila, you've been with another man. This is impossible. She did. And Gary tells the story with a laugh. But you see, the doctor was so dumbfounded when his system didn't work, he couldn't admit it. But the power of the kingdom had operated. And we had a manifestation of it through Becca this morning when she came up. And I hope you were listening. Elaine and I have witnessed the birth of children, many children. We lost count. Doctors said would never be born. The first is over 40 years old. The youngest are still babies. There are many mysteries to healing. I've never been in a healing meeting like Peter's. Even in Catherine Kuhlman's meetings, I was going to say not everybody was healed. Like in this Book of Acts meeting. And sometimes in healing meetings, nobody's healed. They took the first test, and they took the second test, and they, right? Okay, but we press on. Why? We have to. Because every time you or me or I believe God for a miracle of healing, we're coming up against 300 years of unbelief in our culture. We're coming up against 300 years of being told that miracles don't exist. We're coming up against 300 years of being laughed at and called ignorant. To the point where you have to go outside the boundaries of our sophisticated, wise, rationalistic culture to the other places in the world where 95% of all Christians actually live who understand the miraculous in a way that we don't. The shocking truth is, I am considering how to land this plane, Alan. (laughs) The shocking truth is, we have to come to grips with the fact that we, underneath all this aura of wealth and sophistication and education, we actually live in a very broken culture. It's a culture of darkness, broken families, addictions, abortion, fatherlessness, self-centeredness, hopelessness, And great wealth. It kind of looks like the picture of Babylon that we see in Revelation chapter 17. That is what 300 years of denying God has brought us. So what this nation needs and what this community needs, what this city needs, what the university here needs, is the culture of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not all about miracles. Before that, it's about sacrificial love. We know that. But make no mistake, it's a kingdom that advances in power. And when we lose the power, we're in trouble. Churches are designed to be expressions of the kingdom of God, not religious institutions which lull people into a ceremonial haze of dead rituals and then wonder why nobody wants to come. The... You can borrow it. (laughs) Now, I know, and this is important, as maybe we're coming down at at the end, I promise, we're coming down to something that's really important. 
The culture of the apostolic church, which we read in Acts chapter 5, is not one that we're going to be able to duplicate uh, anytime soon. Maybe in one sense it represents an ideal. But just because it's an ideal, it doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Because in every phase of life, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's your education, your maturity, or whatever it is, in every phase of life, we live in the tension between the real and the ideal. The ideal is out here, the real is back here, but the ideal is pulling me every day toward the real. The ideal is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's perfection. It's everything that we could ever want. It's the apostolic church and more. The apostolic church without its faults. Uh, But the ideal is pulling me. If I get disillusioned and give up on the ideal, I won't move forward. I'll get stuck in the real. But just because you haven't got to the ideal, don't be discouraged. John Wimber, founded the Vineyard Movement and lots of churches, had a revelation of healing. And he prayed in his church in Anaheim. In Los Angeles, every week he prayed for people to be healed. Nobody was healed. They took the test the first time and the second time, right? And his, even his wife, Carol, said, John, give up. People were leaving the church. They were, you're, this is so faith-destroying. You're praying for people every week. You're saying God's going to heal. Nobody gets healed. Then one day he gets called to the house of a man in the church who'd been unemployed. He just got a job. He said, Pastor, please come to my house. My wife is sick. She's so sick, I can't leave the house. I'm, I'm going to lose the job we've been praying for. So he came to the house, prayed over the lady, got up, went out the front of their house. He explained to the husband, well, you know, it's important that we keep on praying for healing, even if God it isn't, it hasn't healed. And the man's saying to him, Pastor, she's healed. And he's not even listening. He got into the car and the man's yelling him, Pastor, she's healed. What? (laughs) And that was the first healing. And he went on and traveled throughout the world, uh, including this country, and equipped thousands of people in the ministry of healing. And people would come up to him at conferences and say, Well, you know, I went to your line, I heard your teaching and I prayed for somebody and they didn't get healed. And, he's, and he would say to them, when you pray for a thousand people and no one's healed, then come back and complain. Because that's how many people I prayed for before the first one was healed. See, we live in a tension between the real and the ideal. They took the test the first time and then the second and then the third. We need to be like the widow in Luke 18 who beat the judge black and blue. And it says in the Greek tense is very clear. She kept on coming. Over and over and over again. I don't know how long. She had everything against her. The only weapon she had was persistence. But in the end, that's all she needed. We need to be persistent. Faint not, the scripture says. Don't give up. You don't know when your deliverance may be right around the corner and you're thinking of giving up. When, when, uh, when you're, you feel far from encountering the presence of God, maybe you, you feel, maybe you feel this morning, I'm kind of feeling defeated or despairing or I've got all these challenges in my life. Just take a step toward God. At a time in my life, I was severely discouraged. I was taking the garbage out 
one morning and I thought, I don't even know if I can get to the end of the driveway. If you've heard this story before, it's number 34C and you can forgive me. If you haven't, be blessed. And I thought, I don't even know if I can get to the end of the driveway. And I just heard this voice, not quite as clear as stay in this city and found a church, but I heard this voice within me saying, just put one foot ahead of another. And somehow I got to the end of the driveway. Somehow God met me. And over an extended period of time, things began to get better. And often it's like that. I'm not telling you this morning you can wave a wand, all your problems will disappear, the glory of God will come down. Be nice if it did. But I'm telling you, you've got to fight. And I'm also telling you, take a step toward God. If all you can do is move forward, for Pete's sake, move forward. Don't just sit there. Do something. Don't just stand there. Pray something. Move ahead. Take a step toward God. And you'll be further ahead than you were. And at some point, God will meet you. And if are you broken, bruised, and hurting? Well, that's the kind of people that God loves to use. To place his supernatural power in our clay jars so that he gets the glory. And... Uh, The church was founded in a culture of the kingdom. That much we cannot and must not surrender. No matter what state of mind we're in this morning, it's biblical truth. And that's the truth upon which we stand or fall. If we will only fall if we move away from it. We need to stand on it. It's the culture, the culture of the kingdom is a culture of the Holy Spirit. It is a place where people encounter God. And we have got to be a people who refuse to settle for anything less. Will we lose some battles? Yes. But having done all, we still stand. We'll fight the enemy in every front. We'll be like that widow who battered the judge till she got what she wanted. We will be bruised and bloodied and beaten up. But by the grace of God, we will not give up until we have seen his kingdom come. You are ambassadors of the kingdom. Your ambassadors means your representative of the kingly rule of God. The power of God is operating within you. You need to get up in the morning, look in the mirror, and the results may not be promising. But you need to speak to that image by faith and say, you are an ambassador of the kingdom. Because you can go places nobody else in this room can go. And you represent the king just as much as I represent him standing up here preaching this morning. So let that spirit be in us today. Let his Holy Spirit be in us today as we take hold of his promises. So I invite you this morning, Emmanuel Church. I invite you this morning to ask God this morning, in this moment, for a fresh encounter With the Holy Spirit. Because whatever we have seen in the past. It's only a foretaste. Of what is to come. Thanks be to God.